This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. On May 25th, the European Union will usher in a new set of rules on data protection, collection, and privacy that will hopefully take the next step in securing our personal information. I say our because even though these rules are in effect in Europe, many companies that do business in Europe will have to adapt to them and most likely use those rules both here in the United States due to cost. So we will spend this segment looking at those new rules and what they will mean. Andrea Matuition is a professor of law and professor of computer science at Northeastern University, as well as an affiliate scholar at the Center for Internet and Security, or excuse me, Internet and Society at Stanford Law School. She's also a senior fellow in the Cyber Statecraft Initiative at the Atlantic Council. She joins us on the phone, as does Sinana Rao, who is a professor of management at MIT, where he directs the Social Analytics Lab. Andrew Andrea, Sinan, great to have you both with us today. Thank you again. Thanks for having me. Thank you both. Andrea, uh, the conditions of consent for people's data seems to be one of the hallmark spots of this new law, uh, in part not letting companies have the, the, some of these vague laws to be able to share the data whenever they like to, correct? Yes. So it's sort of 1996 all over again, but with a new twist. So the era of U.S. companies becoming concerned with the language of their privacy policies and the way that they were processing data really started in the the 90s in response to the 1996 data directive from the European Union. So what we see here is the next generation directive that will nudge companies to reconsider the way that they have been presenting their data processing to consumers during the last 20 years, basically. Uh, And in particular, what the GDPR requirements ratchet up involve the particularity of consent in terms of the understandability of what is actually going on with this data. So it functionally includes a plain language requirement and a statement that simply collecting data with air quotes free business models that does not take people out of the regulation so it really hinges on a robust notion of explaining what exactly is going on with the information whether profiles are being built and aggregated using that information as a building block and giving consumers the ability to uh, opt out of profile building, but also needing an affirmative opt-in to the collection of data as well as certain other rights, like a right to reasonable data security and a right to deletion from databases. How important is that withdrawal to consent in this process? Because as you mentioned, it's one thing when you opt in, but it's another thing to be able to opt out when you want to. Yes, and that's been one of the more controversial uh, provisions from the standpoint of U.S. companies. There is a right to be forgotten that's implemented here. Um, But from a U.S. standpoint, this shouldn't be too surprising in some ways, because if we look at the way that contracts have traditionally worked, If your contract is done, if your deal is over with someone, they don't get to continue to demand payment from you. So if you view data as a form of payment, 
during the time that your customer is in a relationship with you, you get to use that information and process that information. But at the point at which a customer is no longer your customer and they have severed clearly the relationship with you, it shouldn't be too shocking to take that next step conceptually and say, well, then maybe I don't get to extract new forms of revenue from that data that the customer gave me a while back when they were really my customer. Sinan, a lot of this obviously is being promoted as what Europe is doing to try and address some of these issues. But realistically, there's a little bit more of a global perspective to this. I mean, the rule that will be put in place will not be officially put in place here in the United States. But then again, there are so many companies that do business in Europe that they are going to have to adapt to this new rule. Uh, even companies that aren't even located in the uh, in Europe that actually, you know, may have a, a a call center that takes calls from Europe will have to be involved in this as well. Yes. So uh, not only, uh, you know, are European citizens going to be covered, but uh, when international firms, Facebook and Google, are deciding how to become compliant with the GDPR, they have to think about what is the most cost-effective and efficient way to try to meet all of these regulations to be able to conduct business in Europe? And what I'm hearing from inside these companies is that uh, it is not efficient and, in fact, potentially not even possible to segregate uh, consumers that are in Europe or sometimes in Europe uh, and then uh, consumers that are outside of Europe, and that a large fraction of the changes that are going to be required of these companies to become compliant will need to apply to everyone, uh, at least the back-end stuff, the infrastructure in terms of what kinds of access different employees or others uh, at those companies have access to in terms of data, how the data is stored, and so forth. And this all comes also in the same week where Mark Zuckerberg uh, was in the uh, European Union, actually in the UK, uh, testifying before uh, Parliament and and other leaders, from what I understand, Sinan. And and that did not go as well as probably a lot of those lawmakers would have liked. Well, I mean, I think Mark Zuckerberg has uh, prepared himself intensely for both the congressional testimony here in the United States as well as the testimony uh, in Europe. Um, I think... You know, the the implementation of GDPR reminds me of that great Yogi Berra quote about how in theory and practice, there's no difference between theory and practice, but in practice there is. (laughs) Right. When we we get into actually implementing these rules and when people, when individual citizens start bringing cases about algorithmic transparency, tell me how your algorithm made this decision about my loan or – uh, when they say, okay, I would like uh, my data, you, the GDPR Article 20 says data has to be portable. I would like to port my data into another social network. Can I please do that? And then they say, okay, here, here you go. Here's a list of all of your friends. Then a court will have to decide, is that sufficient data portability? All of the, all of the case law that will follow the implementation of the GDPR, all of the devils and the details of how Uh, the European Union intends to enforce these rules will determine a lot of what the economic and social impact of the GDPR is, both on the firms and on citizens 
in Europe and in other parts of the world. Andrew, I would think as this is implemented for companies like Facebook and Google and, and others that are outside of Europe, that but they obviously do business there uh, as well, that there are positives and negatives to, to uh, being part of this. Positive, I would think it probably is somewhat of a cost savings that they don't have to run two different sets of criteria, one for Europe and one for the rest of the world, but I'm sure there's some negatives along the way as well. Sure. And so from their perspective, one of the major negatives is the possibility of administrative fines of up to 20 million euro or 4% of total worldwide annual turnover, as the regulation says, for the preceding financial year, whichever is higher. So that is a possibility of a fine with actual teeth if you are a Google or a Facebook. Um, So on the one hand, in addressing these enhanced principles in GDPR, these companies uh, will undoubtedly incur some restructuring of their privacy and security practices now. But as a consequence, the silver lining of sorts, one could say, is that if they do robustly comply with GDPR, their U.S. privacy problems will substantially go away in large part because this is a higher standard than the general approach that the United States takes. So while there may be more regulatory oversight and future testimony and inquiry in European Union member countries in the future of social networking companies like Facebook, uh, as a consequence, their U.S. compliance woes will probably be fewer. And uh, the spillover effects of the EU uh, compliance will benefit not only their operations, but also their U.S. customers will be pleased with this increased level of transparency, as we saw from the fallout from the Cambridge Analytica Uh, data sharing incident and uh, other rumblings around Facebook and uh, other tech companies. Sinan, do you see positives and negatives as well? Yeah, absolutely. Again, the devil's in the details, but think about this. The the negatives, uh, you know, to say that this law has teeth is an understatement. You know, fines up to 4% of global revenue. Uh, For Amazon, that's about $7 billion or approximately two years worth of profit, uh, which is a massive number. On the other hand, what are the effects of GDPR on competition? You might say, well, data portability enables new entrants to be able to share the social graph information, for instance, that Facebook has or other kinds of data that Google and Amazon might have about consumers. But on the other hand, you have to remember that uh, these types of markets have tremendous network effects, which means the greater the number of users you have on your platform, the more uh, difficult it is for those users to leave the platform because the value to them is so high. So if something like this is uh, implemented and if all of these companies have to request permission from users to have access to their private data and to handle it in these ways that are detailed in the GDPR, consumers are more likely to say yes to companies like Facebook and Google because they have all of their data with Google right right now. They use Gmail. They have all of their friends on Facebook. So it's very difficult to leave. But – Would they say yes to new entrants who want to compete with Facebook and Google? Well, maybe not, because their network effects are not as great. Uh, Their ties in terms of data and access to friends and so on uh, with these newer companies is not as great. 
I might as a consumer say, well, I'm not going to say yes to those requests from newer companies, but I'll go ahead and stick with the, uh, the old powerful companies. So there may be effects positively for competition from things like data portability, depending on how it's implemented. And there may be negative effects for competition if the network effects from companies like Facebook and Google mean that they entrench uh, their user base and their power as a result of the implementation of GDPR. Andrew, does does the U.S. government, even though they're not going to be making the formal changes, but does the U.S. government benefit from this change in general? Yes, I think that U.S. enforcers do benefit from this change because of the overall approach that GDPR takes. So, for example, in terms of data security enforcement, the Federal Trade Commission and other agencies are generally adopting an approach driven by reasonableness with an eye to the state of the art of security practices that is entirely consonant with the approach that GDPR takes. And in fact, by imposing explicitly a requirement to consider the state of the art and uh, the level of security of user information, uh, GDPR creates functionally a floor of security, which means from the, a competition standpoint, the companies that currently market claiming certain levels of security that are not actually providing it, those are the kinds of companies that will be impacted by this approach. Mm -hmm. And in essence, their ability to free ride on the, the better security practices of other companies by a lack of enforcement of this baseline in some cases, that will start to fall away, provided that GDPR is actually enforced. So um, it is consonant with the approach of U.S. regulators, and it gives them a hook to be able to point to, for example, strong statements such as data privacy concerns impacting physical safety of consumers, right. Right. which is an approach that U.S. courts have sometimes been hesitant to take. But here it is in black and white, the EU is saying to us, Privacy impacts physical safety as well as interests of personality and dignity. Well, and where the consumer part of it is concerned, Andrea, if you're a citizen in Europe and now that this is going to be put into play, obviously you have been concerned with all the stories that we've heard of your personal data, of your personal protection. Should the consumer feel like they are going to be markedly better with this with this rule in place? It's certainly a signal that the citizens of the EU and their regulators feel that the tech economy has taken us down a path where the extent of data aggregation, leveraging, and reuse presents a threat to the baselines of dignity of the person that drives these privacy laws in the EU context. So U.S. consumers will certainly get a spillover effect from the, the EU approach that has a different kind of focus. We tend to think in the U.S. about a contract-based model for data sharing, privacy, leveraging of information, repurposing, um, and loss. But uh, in the EU, it's just a different baseline model that right. isn't a commodified one. And so we've always benefited as U.S. consumers from the more aggressive approach 
that the, that the EU takes on privacy questions. Uh, and this is the first signal that they're going to extend this more rigorous approach to security questions as well, which U.S. consumers will also benefit from. And the other part, which I found interesting, Sinani, is the fact, I guess, with uh, this change to the notification rule uh, and the fact that, uh, you know, if there is a breach of some kind, there has to be notification from what I read within 72 hours to an authority about the fact that this occurred, which obviously when, when we hear about some of the breaches uh, here in the U.S. and other locations, uh, it, in some cases, it's months after the fact that we actually learned that this happened. Yes, completely agree with that. You have 72 hours to, to tell uh, an authority about a data breach. Then you have to ask yourself two questions. One, how do you define a data breach? Uh, you remember in the congressional testimony uh, Mark Zuckerberg and, and Facebook in their public statements made very clear Cambridge Analytica was not a data breach. Right. So w- what is a data breach? If I give my, uh, if I, if as a platform, I give my data to a third party and then they, uh, you know, neglect the consumer's trust and sell it on to a fourth party who does things like Cambridge Analytica was trying to do, is that a data breach or not? Then the second question you have to ask yourself is, what does the regulator do? upon being told about a data breach. That's really where the rubber meets the road is once the information about data breach is is disclosed to a regulator, what is the follow-on steps that are, what are the follow-on steps that are taken next? Uh, I think we'll have to to pay attention to that. I'll add one point, which is that I think with this whole GDPR implementation, we all have to pay very close attention to unintended consequences. It's not clear when this regulation goes into effect that we are going to be able to see all of the possible effects that it will have and in which direction it will point innovation or competition and so on. So we were talking about privacy, I mean, security just a second ago. Think about the uh, right to algorithmic transparency. Not only is it hard, for instance, for uh, platforms or companies to know, for instance, why it's uh, deep learning or neural network-based algorithms are producing the results that they are producing. But if we have complete algorithmic transparency in the cybersecurity area, for instance, do we want cybersecurity companies and algorithms to be transparent? Will that increase the ability of hackers to get around or game uh, their algorithms? Uh, because now how those algorithms are working to detect cyber criminals also has to be transparent. How it's implemented and what the unintended consequences are are two things we really need to keep our eye on. Do you think that we will eventually see something similar here in the U.S.? It may not be 72 hours, but, you know, obviously a lot uh, a lot sooner than we're seeing right now. Um, I think there's there's room for that. I do think that there will be uh, some action on the part of uh, United States regulators. It's not clear what that will be. Uh, I do agree that the GDPR is uh, dramatically uh, stricter than U.S. rules. And so, in essence, uh, you know, all of these major companies in getting compliant with GDPR will go a long way to, uh, to preserving privacy and security even beyond what regulators in the United States are likely to do. Um, and, and, you know, again, we'll see. When I was watching the congressional testimony uh, with Mark Zuckerberg answering questions, uh, I was not made uh, very confident that our regulators are really prepared to uh, enact legislation that they fully understand at this point. I think they're going to need a lot of guidance. I think they're going to need a lot of uh, 
you know, expert advice about what the potential economic, social, and technological mm-hmm. consequences of any regulatory action would be. Andrea, your thoughts? Uh, so, as someone who, who studies security, I have a slightly uh, different analysis. So, for me, the Facebook situation was not a breach. It was just an abuse of contractually granted rights. If you define a, a breach in line with the way that a, the security community would define a breach, it basically relates to a situation where third-party attackers can access information that they are not supposed to be able to access based on the way that the company thinks they've set up the databases or manipulate that information um, or make it unavailable to customers. So if you take a strict definition of breach, which may or may not be the the thinking that's adopted by member states, admittedly, but with, with that kind of a definition of breach, it's really about the maintenance of confidentiality, integrity, and availability of information. And so there is a way to view a a data breach as not being an ambiguous uh, or vague uh, term. So the uh, definitional implementation, um, as it does in this country, will really matter. And it's uh, an issue of definitions that um, regulators, not just in the EU, but in the U.S., have not always uh, specified with adequate precision the distinction between uh, privacy and security, um, and it's one that sometimes falls by the wayside. But on the point of algorithmic transparency um, and uh, security, uh, it's important to also recognize that if you are viewing a security through obscurity process, meaning hiding your code away and thinking you can prevent third-party attackers from reverse engineering it, if you're viewing that as your prime security mechanism for your proprietary R&D, your most sensitive corporate information, that's not a good strategy. So the the question of understanding what your algorithms do, if you don't understand what your algorithms do and how they get there, you should really take a step back and ask (laughs) yourself if you should be building that algorithm, because that's how bad things will happen with algorithms going awry. And the consequences of the harms that can result from algorithms that we don't understand being unleashed on society, those will bring liability too. So GDPR will be the least of your problems if your algorithm goes rogue and takes out an electrical grid, a nuclear power plant, et cetera. So I think the overall approach to nudging companies to understand what their code does and does not do and whether they have reasonable data care processes in place, that spirit of GDPR is a needed nudge. And it's one that um, our uh, legislators, members of Congress, and regulators will hopefully uh, encourage uh, serious compliance with because we will all benefit as a society as well as the companies themselves. It is a win-win to implement strong security methods and to have robust processes in place. Shareholder values increase and the rights of Consumers are a side benefit uh, when you are robustly defending your intellectual property assets. It's been great having you both, as always. Thank you very much for your insight. Thank you, Andrew Sinan. Thank you as well. Thank you. Thanks. Thank you both. Andrew Matuishan of uh, Northeastern University, Sinan Aral of MIT. For more insight from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu. 